and welcome back to the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Coming up on today's show, UPS's Director of Sustainability for Europe, Peter Harris, discusses emission-free logistics and how they'll interact in the cities of the future. My sector, the transportation sector, um, is, is brought into uh, an interesting world where we're not purely dealing with transportation anymore, we're also working with the energy sector. Mars's Global Vice President for Sustainability, Kate Wiley, discusses how science-based targets can enable businesses to deliver their fair share of the contribution towards the Paris Agreement. And now you're seeing governments have uh, confidence in stronger policies. So there are discussions happening around you know, science-based targets moving into legislation. And then you'll get more companies committing. ING's Global Head of Sustainable Finance, Leonie Shreve, on how the terror approach is helping decarbonise finance portfolios in line with that Global Climate Accord. We have committed last September to the uh, Terra approach. Uh, 600 billion indeed in the most um, carbon in, uh, intensive sectors that we want to align well below the two degrees scenario. And we speak to the Carbon Trust Chief Executive Tom DeLay to outline whether the plastics problem can act as a gateway to engage consumers on climate change and sustainability. There is such an outcry on plastics. There is such a popular movement behind net deal with single-use plastics that it might be blind to some of the issues that it throws up. So, yes, hello and welcome back. It's been a few weeks since our last episode, uh, but hopefully our big Brexit podcast questions have been appeasing your appetite for now. It has, in all honesty, been a rather manic few weeks for the ED team, um, fresh off of our Engage event last week and a little over a week away until our flagship ED Live event in Birmingham. So much so that both Luke Nichols and James Everson aren't able to join me for this episode. In fact, the room's looking a little bit um, sparse in that sense. But never fear, our Roman reporter, Sarah, has been as busy as ever collecting interviews for this episode. Sarah, how have you been over the last few weeks? Well, I think you said the word there, which is manic, which it just has been busy, busy, busy. It's the most exciting time of the year, I think, and I joined it about this time last year but just between hosting events um, preparing exclusive content ahead of ED Live and keeping on with business as usual has been keeping both of us busy yeah it's been um, the the hours fly quickly when you've got that much work to do Mm. which is one of the benefits and yeah as you mentioned the stuff is is generally interesting it's probably the the best time of the year for for us in terms of uh, that type of content and just keeping on our toes Um, and in that sense we've We've still managed to pull together a podcast episode for this week, and this podcast episode has a, has a kind of specific purpose, I suppose, and that's to address the, the climate tipping point we've supposedly reached in recent weeks. There's been all the climate strikes, the Net Zero Report publications, Attenborough documentary showing walruses plummeting to their death. There's I some... <laughs> I was having a nice day. Until you me in there. I, I know, it's... it's, it's some of the stuff's really real and really almost dystopian that's happening out there, but it's stuff that absolutely needs to be addressed. And this episode is going to look at how businesses can kind of play their part in that climate uh, battle. We're going to focus on a couple of key sectors that um, can align themselves with the required decarbonisation to halt the worst impacts of climate change. So for this episode, we're going to be hearing from sustainability experts from food and drink sector, transport sector, the finance sector, and then to wrap it up nicely, we'll hear from one of the uh, low carbon leaders um, and how all businesses can kind of promote and communicate rapid decarbonisation. And Sarah, as is, seems to be the case 
with most of our recent podcast episodes, you've done a lot of the legwork here. So I think we will get going with our first segment. And just to set it up a little bit, can you can you tell me a little bit about the current state of play in the transport sector and, and why our first interviewee is kind of primed to provide some best practice insight? Um, sure. So if you have been on the ED website in the past few months or if you just generally haven't been living under a rock, you're probably aware that transport is now the most carbon intense sector in the UK. So as the power sector has been shifting to renewables, transport's transition has been um, a lot slower and its emissions are actually rising while nationwide emissions are falling, largely driven by that transport sector. Um, So we cover a lot of news about businesses shifting across to electric vehicles, but the fact is that fleet managers do still have concerns about these technologies. Um, primarily around range and charging infrastructure ability mm-hmm. um, and the fact that the upfront cost is still higher than petrol and diesel in a lot of European and indeed other developed markets. Um, and we've published a lot of studies recently saying that these concerns are not pulled out of thin air, that they are founded. So PwC, for example, found that the number of electric vehicles in the UK has doubled every year since 2011. Um, but that the compound annual growth rate for charging infrastructure installations has been less than half of that. Um, And UPS is kind of uniquely positioned in this, as is the wider um, logistics sector, Mm -hmm. because this is a sector that doesn't just operate um, more electrifiable cars and small vans, um, but also, as Peter discusses, heavier vans and trucks, and UPS even, I'm not sure many people are aware of this, but it has its own airline. Okay. as, as well and the, these are areas where the low carbon revolution has been as I mentioned um, much slower um, at the same time for for logistics there are more and more cities and towns imposing um, emissions related mm. um, legislation to improve air pollution as we're seeing with the ULES in London so this means that logistics is at a real um, pinch point to decarbonise their last mile deliveries at the moment Okay, so as you yeah brilliantly described there, UPS and logistics as a whole are um, faced with a plethora of challenges in that mm-hmm. sense related to decarbonisation and, and climate change. Um, and you sat down with the Director of Sustainability for Europe, Peter Harris, mm-hmm. to discuss through that. So for those listening, do enjoy that interview and then join us for part two, where we discuss the climate challenge in the food and drink industry. I've managed to grab some time with Peter Harris, who is the Sustainability Director for UPS's European Operations. Um, obviously, key needy readers and podcast listeners will know that UPS has been leading in the low-carbon logistics space for quite some time. So great to get a catch-up with you today, Peter. Thanks, Sarah. Good to see you again. Yes, and as we were saying, the last time that we actually chatted to someone in UPS in person will have been several months ago um, now about progress on the Camden depot um, for the recharging of electric delivery trucks and some of the closed loop and low carbon solutions around that. So, But since then, what's been keeping you busy? Well, there's a lot going on. We've continued to refine our work in the Camden depot around understanding how best to deploy smart grid and energy storage technologies and I guess one of the, uh, the, the, the the bigger pieces of work that we're just uh, undertaking right now is the deployment of the first of our range extended electric vehicles mm. that they'll be going into our, or they are going in right now into our Birmingham and Southampton operations 
And the exciting thing about uh, this technology is that it allows us for the first time to be able to bring um, emission-free, zero-emission at the tailpipe uh, logistics solutions to cities that we could not serve with pure electric vehicles. Mm. So the Reg Extended Electric Vehicle is a series hybrid. That means that the vehicle carries on an, an onboard generator which has the capability of recharging the batteries when needed. And the, and the way that it works is that it is telematically controlled. So that if we have an operation like Birmingham that uh, is too far from our uh, operating centre in Tamworth to be able to be reached with a pure EV, then by deploying the range extended EV, the, uh, the, 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 the hybrid engine charges the batteries on the way to the city. And then uh, at a, at a geofenced boundary around the city, the generator switches off and the vehicle is able to operate all day as a zero emission um, uh, collection uh, delivery vehicle um, and then on the way back to the depot again the generator tops up the batteries to the extent that is needed. So this is great because it extends our vision of the electrification of our urban fleets. That is still very much our vision alongside the two parallel technologies also deploying cycles in really dense uh, city centres where, where, where that's a feasible solution and the deployment of uh, renewable natural gas for the long haul. So those three technologies remain our focus and we're just steadily taking uh, step by step uh, further moves to, to innovate into those spaces. Mm. And obviously, so last mile delivery, urban mobility have been very hot topics at the moment with air pollution. Um, but we were talking a bit yesterday about the need for that innovation to be extended perhaps for long-distance journeys and the fact that most people don't know that UPS is also an airline. So could you give us an idea of where some of the technologies and innovations outside of that last mile and light transport sector? Mm. Yeah, so uh, there's a lot of synergy uh, in, in the whole transportation space between the different uh, sectors. So one example would be the, uh, the, 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 the things that we're learning from our work with uh, smart power supply infrastructures, such as our smart grid work, our energy storage system work in Camden, that has great implications also for the long term for the, uh, the long-haul uh, market as well, because we've got to figure out a way eventually of bringing electrification to long-haul transport. So one will help to support the other. At the same time, we're working on uh, uh, renewable natural gas as a, a very successful bridging solution that will get us from where we are today to the point where that electrification can work uh, for, for the long haul. Uh, another crossover example would be that uh, the work that we're doing on smart grids and uh, energy storage uh, and power infrastructures, that, that can cross over into, for example, the way in which taxi fleets or public sector fleets could operate. So it could be possible, for example, that in, uh, in some of the, the depots where we deploy this infrastructure, that may lead us to a position where we could consider offering uh, a service outside of our depot to other users, drawn from the same power supply at times when we're not using it. So all of these things are areas uh, that, that are fascinating to explore. I think we're, you know, we're moving towards a world where electrification will be certainly one of the key technologies, but we have to understand not only the vehicle side, but also the power supply side. Um, and uh, that's, that really means that my sector, the transportation sector, um, is, is brought into 
uh, an interesting world where we're not purely dealing with transportation anymore. We're also working with the energy sector, the energy supply sector. That's something we've not been familiar with. It's something that we're finding very interesting and we're finding uh, great opportunities for crossover and mutual learnings so that we can uh, advance the game. And you mentioned some of it there and yesterday that those of you who will be have been following UPS over the past few years have been leading this innovation space and trialling some of these things that have been talked about that aren't broadly uptaken within the sector outside of logistics or even outside of your own operations in this space. So how can we get that innovation wider, what is needed to support it, where does it actually sit in this puzzle? Yeah, I think that's that's a, a really great point and, and we do believe that uh, the work that we're doing really can't just sit with us uh, because uh, the, the, the challenges that we face as a society around uh, uh, greenhouse gas, around urban pollution requires accelerated movement from all players. So, uh, the, the way we, we, we typically work in this space is that we form a consortia to tackle a problem um, and then part of the, the work that we do with that consortium is focused on dissemination so that we're able to take the learnings from the work that we've, uh, we've done and spread it to a much broader audience. I'll, I'll take the example of the, uh, the, the consortium that we formed around the, uh, the, the power supply solution in, in central London. Mm -hmm. So this was a, a collaboration, this is a collaboration between ourselves the local distribution network operator, UK Power Networks, the entrepreneurial arm of that network operator, UKPN Services, uh, and also a Cross River Partnership who, who bring uh, local authorities to the table. And working between the four of us, we were able to reach out and get government support uh, for, for the work that we've been doing. Uh, and that has got us to the point where we've been able to deploy successfully the technologies that we've been speaking about, but also has led us to be able to run a series of dissemination events, both in the, the Camden Depot and externally, where we explain what we've learned, the mistakes that we've made, and the successes that we've had to a much wider audience, uh, in the hope that that can help them to, uh, to, to benefit from what we've already done uh, and accelerate the uptake of these technologies more widely within the, the transportation sector. It, it's really important that, that we don't all invent the same wheel here. You know, so UPS is, is it, the, the nature of innovation is that you don't get it all right uh, from, from day one. So we've done things that uh, we could have done better and, and we're very happy to, to explain that at these dissemination events and, and help others deploy the same solutions more efficiently. There's a saying uh, that, 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 uh, that's popularly used which says a rising tide lifts all ships uh, and, and that's what we need to do here. We need to make sure that these, these technologies become uh, widespread deployed, partly because that's what society needs in the way of solution of, of key problems, but also because that's the way in which we will drive down the cost of these solutions by, by bringing them into to volume deployment so that the providers can then uh, offer them at a steadily reduced cost so that we work towards the point which is, the, which is where we are moving towards. Uh, the, the, the alternative solution, the sustainable solution, will be as cheap as, if not, if not even cheaper than, the conventional solution. And when we get to that point, of course, then the question really becomes, well, you know, why would you not do it? You know, that, that, that becomes a flip-over point uh, in, uh, in everybody's business model. 
And then you've talked a lot there, not only we started on so low-carbon low innovation in terms of physical devices and systems, and, and then more on social innovation, so innovative communications and collaborations. And do you see this taking off outside of logistics as, as well? Because while, while obviously you guys are making great progress towards low-carbon, as I'm sure a lot of other logistics firms that we work with, we've had good news in the past few months from the likes of Anpost in Ireland, Royal Mail here in England, um, do you think that these innovations, both technological and otherwise, could be the key for the rest of the transport sector? Without doubt. I, I'm, I'm, I'm an optimist by nature, but not an irrational one. Um, I'm an engineer by background, and, I, and I, I fervently believe in the power of technological innovation, both in terms of uh, uh, devices, but also in terms of products and processes as well. And we're seeing some of the fruits of that in the work that we've been discussing. But the key to unlocking uh, the power of that innovation is, is to figure out how to make partnerships and collaborations work. And the, 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 I think one of the, the keys that I've learned over the past uh, few years of uh, trying to make this process more successful is you don't start with a, a room full of likely collaborators and then decide what to do. You start by thinking out what is it that you want to fix? What is the problem that you want to solve? Yeah, so for example, in the case of the example uh, we were just discussing there, it was about how do we deliver a cost-effective power supply solution to a fleet, uh, an electric fleet to be recharged in one building overnight. So we focused our minds on that one problem that we wanted to solve. And we built the consortium, the collaboration that I described around that, of like-minded organisations that wanted to address that particular issue. And that meant that there was no debate or, uh, or discussion within the consortium about where we wanted to go. We knew where we wanted the to go. The purpose is already we were, there. You've got buy-in already. Exactly right. Mm -hmm. We were entirely focused on delivering the solution and, uh, and its work. Fantastic. Well, let's end on a high note then, and we'll let Peter get on, as I'm sure he's very busy for the rest of the event. But thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Sarah. It's been a pleasure. Hello, and welcome back. So, Sarah, you spoke to Peter at um, a recent Economist Summit, I believe it was, and I think you were also meant to speak to our next guest there, as well, but before introducing them, could you give a bit of insight as to how the food and drink sector, as that's what we're focusing on, is, is fair in relation to, to climate change? You really tested me. Today. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I did a bit of digging on some of the content that we put out about the agri-food sector, because essentially food is farming. Mm -hmm. um, so it's at the forefront of climate change and supply chains for key resources are spread out, which makes it hard to harder to monitor not only human rights risk but risks of um, suppliers causing deforestation, operating in high-risk deforestation areas or exacerbating water stress through poor poor management and because a lot of these supply chains are in hot climes um, abroad they're also likely to experience extreme weather events so therefore driving the problem and also at risk of losing out to it um, really, and it's been estimated that 75% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions are accounted for by agriculture, um, lar largely actually not, not carbon, but the methane and NOx associated yeah. with meat um, and dairy. And as you mentioned at, at the beginning of this episode, the climate tipping point is really being felt in this sector, um, largely due to population growth, which the, so the UN estimates there's going to be 10 billion humans on this planet before 
2050, which means that that food and drink companies will have to grow more product over the next over the next 40 years than humanity has in the past 10,000 years. Oh, wow. Um, to put that into perspective. Um, the good news after all those damning stats is that um, th- this also means the sector is well poised to play a, a big part of the solution. Um, WWF estimates that agriculture alone could provide around a third of the solutions needed for climate challenges by 2030, for example. Um, so our next speaker is Kate Wiley, who's the Global VP for Sustainability at Mars, um, one of the world's biggest branded food and drink um, companies out there. And anyone that's been following them will know about their sustainable in- a generation strategy, um, flagship strategy, including science-based targets, big renewable goals, and most importantly, a ring-fenced budget of $1 billion mm-hmm. to spend on boosting sustainability. Yep, and Kate um, used to be a regular on the ED website a couple of years ago, um, so it's glad to glad to see she's back and, and in full swing in, in that job role. So we're going to play that interview with Mars's Global VP for Sustainability, Kate Wiley in full, and then join us for part three, where we <clears throat> touch on something we just touched on there, which is financing the low-carbon revolution. I'm joined on the phone today by Kate Wiley, who's the Global Vice President of Sustainability at Mars. Um, And this was meant to be taking place at the Economist Summit, but sadly I heard that Kate wasn't very well. Kate, are you feeling better today? I am, thank you. Yes, that was just a 24-hour buzz, but it was awful timing um, to not be able to be on the panel. I was very sad to miss it. Well, we're glad to have you along now, hopefully to summarise what you would have said on the panel, which was, the title was a really intriguing one, I thought. It was a new economic model. Um, so discussing mm-hmm. whether capitalism and our current model can be adjusted to be made sustainable, and if so, how stakeholders can work together um, to make that the case. I'm presuming that as a large company, Mars and yourself would hold the view that that transformation is possible. Yes, yes, we hope so. It's, it's, it's certainly a challenge, but um, we've we believe um, and we remain optimistic on that it will happen. Mm. And obviously you guys have been championing the the sort of low carbon and sustainability lead- leadership agenda through the Sustainable Inner Generations Plan. But how, how has that mm. been enabled by other stakeholders? Yeah, so um, let me just talk for two minutes about um, sort of what we've committed to on the carbon side of things. So Mars has... Um, targets based on science. We believe in climate science and um, therefore we take the IPCC um, data and the science-based targets methodology to calculate um, you know, what those commitments should be for Mars in order for us to deliver our fair share towards um, the Paris Agreement and limiting the um, the consequences of, our, um, of the temperature increase. So those are minus 27% by 2025 and minus 67% by uh, 2050. And how we get there is a mixture of um, sourcing strategies and different um, different ways and different mechanisms and different products uh, that we buy. Um, and so, for example, uh, limiting deforestation, which is a high contributing factor towards our carbon target, and then um, shifting to renewable energy for our operations. So, um, 
So the stakeholder part, so yes, so for, for example, um, the, the stakeholders such as sort of NGOs and the science community have been fundamental in us um, both developing our targets, helping us think through how we deliver them, and also um, supporting us in a platform to, um, to drive um, that change um, beyond our four walls. So be that through um, engaging regulation to sort of um, commit to the Paris Agreement or, um, or other companies to do the same by signing up to um, science-based targets. At the same time, policymakers have supported us in sort of catalyzing renewable energy in those markets. So where you look at we've rolled out renewable energy, most of those have had um, policy, renewable energy policies to support that, um, that industry growth at some point. And they're also starting to do some really interesting work on um, helping prevent deforestation. Um, so, yes, yeah, so that's sort of NGO, science community, and policymakers, stakeholders that have helped us towards our low-carbon transition. Mm. And then going forward there, you mentioned the importance of science and of the IPCC, but do you think that that support will be enough to get, get forward even further in the low-carbon tra- transition, or do you have a wish list of other things that you'd like to see happen in the future? Yeah, yes, we have a, we have a wish list, definitely. So um, I think something that's interesting about the dynamics of policymakers and, um, and business is um, the concept of the ambition loop that WRI, the World Resources Institute, um, shares, where they, they have this um, uh, idea that sort of policymakers and business can keep pushing each other. So one sort of creates a sort of set of actions, and those actions drive behaviours on the other side, and they push the other side more. So, for example, in climate, you know, there was the Climate Change Act in the UK, and then some companies started to make action. And then there was the Paris Agreement um, by policymakers for sort of broader country rollout. And, you know, then more businesses are taking action, and the science-based move, target movement started. And now you're seeing governments have uh, confidence in stronger policies. So there are discussions happening around you know, science-based targets moving into legislation. And then you'll get more companies committing to science-based targets nationally, and governments would then see these commitments and design more incentives to drive sort of further business action, and so it will continue. Um, so we'd like to see that um, sort of dynamic continue to play out and keep pushing um, keep pushing the behaviours more. And then, you know, so that's sort of regulation on commitments and also regulation on driving, um, incentivising the right behaviour change. So, for example, carbon pricing through a clear and transparent hypothecated tax model. So that means that the tax receipts goes back into fueling um, a low-carbon economy. Great. And then I wanted to bring things back down to just a Mars scale, because we've talked about how the company interacts with with stakeholders and with policymakers um, there. But we also touched on some of you guys' internal um, big goals. And I was looking through the ED website ahead of this call, and the last update we actually had on those was on September. So would you mind giving us a sneak peek into what's been happening since then? Sure, sure. So um, a lot's been happening internally, as you can imagine, you know, so we launched sustainable in a generation um, in, um, you know, 18 months ago. And so um, one of the, where the most impact is within our business is within um, our supply chains. And so we've been working through um, our raw materials, and there's about 10 raw materials that make up, you know, 80%, give or take, of our impact. So 
for those 10, we've been driving, developing and driving transformational strategies that will um, you know, sort of transform how we buy, transform our supply chain, and deliver against the impacts that um, we need. So where you're starting to see this play out, for example, is um, you know, palm oil, soy, pulp paper, and so on. And you know, this is mainly internal activity that's happening, but you know, an example of what, where this is leading is that we're becoming much more transparent in our suppliers, the volumes, and so on that we've disclosed um, online. And also organizationally, our chief sustainability officer became our chief procurement officer as well. So that's marrying up sustainability and purchasing um, to drive the change um, required. And then sort of on the ground programs, for example, we're rolling out more and more uh, renewable energy strategies where, you know, we go market by market um, purchasing 100% renewable energy. Um, and we're now at about 40% of our operations come from renewable energy. So Mexico was recently launched and Australia is coming soon. And then a significant um, uh, development is um, the launch of our cocoa for generations. Strategy, which is a, um, a a revamp of our cocoa strategy, and it's incremental to sustainable in a generation, where we're um, agreeing to um, spend a billion dollars over the next ten years in creating thriving farming communities for cocoa, with a series of commitments under them. But for example, by 2025, we aim to have 100% of our cocoa traceable and responsibly sourced. So, serious transformation of our cocoa supply chains. Okay, great. Now, I do feel like supply chain engagement is something I've been writing about a lot in recent times. I mean, CDP mm. put out their new figures on it and the increase in this has just been been um, outstanding. And I've found even that a lot of um, rating apps and even investors are starting to consider supply chains more now than ever before. Would, would you say that you've seen that as well? Yes, it's fantastic. So, for example, there's things like the letters from CEO of BlackRock or S&P purchasing true cost. You know, are the movements in the right direction of, um, you know, uh, investors, financiers, uh, taking into consideration um, these wider set of KPIs? Um, and, you know, absolutely we want to see more of this because that will aim um, drive the right conversations, but be drive the right behaviours to change and implementation. Great. And then I just wanted to touch on something else I've seen a lot from Mars since our September update is that you guys always seem to be popping up on the agenda at events that I'm going to. Mm. So like the Economist one, and then I think we dialed into one of your colleagues at COP24 a few a few months ago. Um, so what what is your what is your view in how this platforming helps you become and remain a sustainability leader? So we do it for a number of reasons. Um, it's, you know, first of all, you're just sharing and learning, right? Just the content, you know, helping to inspire your thinking, connecting and brainstorming and sort of meeting new concepts and developing work and developing content. So as well as sort of, it's, as well as that drive of sort of leadership, which I think is around um, sharing strong points of view to drive the change required in order for us to deliver um, our, um, the low-carbon economy that we need. So, yes, so we aim to be present and highly vocal at the major events such as COP, Climate Week, Economist Summits, and so on. Um, and each of those, we go with um, 
you know, you'll see us with a sort of strong point of view or call to action to help drive the agenda forward. So, um, as you said, for example, we were at um, the COP, the last COP, and, you know, at each of these, we've been discussing sort of range of things like the importance of science-based targets, the business case for um, low-carbon economy whilst growing, um, or renewable energy. Um, and what's, at, the, at the last COP, I think it was fascinating because what happened was in previous COPs, you've had sort of the business and the NGO community separate from government. And um, at the last COP, we saw that the We Are Still In coalition organized a series of meetings with those actually negotiating um, mm. at the COP, so there's the U.S. market, the Chinese market, government, and so on, and so sort of five to six different governments. Um, so that's sort of where, you know, we're starting to see, you know, the sort of policy business um, conversations really driving the change required. Um, but also it helps us develop our work. So when we're at these events, we often host um, sort of workshops. So the last one, again, we had a workshop on the methodology around tracking scope three emissions and invited to 50 to 60 uh, organizations and individuals across the range of spectrums to sort of discuss and then bring across harmonization um, and encourage harmonized measurement to drive change in the most sort of efficient um, manner. Mm -hmm. So yes, so it's about, you know, they're, they're fantastic for us to to share our point of view for us to learn, but also to sort of brainstorm, develop content, and then help advocate for the change required across a series of different mm. um, topics uh, throughout the low-carbon economy. Well, it sounds like those conversations are getting a lot more collaborative and hands-on, so fingers crossed they can go some way, some way to bring about those ambition loops that you talked about earlier. Great. Well, that's everything I have down for today, Kate. But thank you so much for taking the time out to come on our podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So welcome back to part three of this podcast episode. And as I mentioned before, we're going to be focusing on financing this global fight against climate change. Um, the finance sector as a whole is probably one of the most risk adverse out there um, and has been a little late to the party regarding this transition, understandably so when there's uh, so much money at stake for their portfolios. But I'm going to give you a little kind of state of play, nowhere near as in-depth as what Sarah's provided, so apologies in advance. But reports have suggested that the current global economic system will not be able to underpin the level of public and private financing needed to meet the Sustainable Development Goals. Um, and in the UK, just 5% of the largest pension fund managers have a specific policy in place to uh, mitigate combat climate change. Um, and it's pretty much you know, universally acknowledged that trillions of dollars of investment will be needed to spur decarbonisation. Um, but at a glance across the sector, there are very few leaders that are stepping up However, um, ING is one of those said leaders. Um, it's recently revealed that it will work with the companies covered by its £456 million green investment portfolio to help them align their respective sustainability strategies with the aims of the Paris Agreement, in which is very much an industry first. The, uh, the Dutch bank has announced that it will steer that portfolio towards the 2C trajectory of the Paris Agreement using a set of metrics which it's called Terra. 
and it is the first investor to adopt a science-based approach in that sense. And I recently sat down with ING's Global Head of Sustainable Finance, Leonie Shreve, to discuss the uh, Terra approach and how the bank is aligning its services to combat climate change. Um, so enjoy that chat and then do join us for our final part of this podcast episode where we discuss how businesses can start to communicate these approaches with um, some ever-engaged consumers. Okay, so um, Leonie, thank you very much for um, inviting me into uh, the ING offices today in central London. I think this is like maybe the second or third time I've been here, so it's, a, it's becoming a little home from home uh, in that sense. And I believe you, you're in the country for is it a couple of days? or I'm here just today. And, just today. Uh, yeah, and thank you for coming over, Matt. And um, it's good to have our discussion today again. Yes, and indeed. And um, I think last time we... We spoke, it was a written piece for the article, which was more about the state of kind of green finance and, and the, the need to kind of standardise it so it doesn't kind of get lost in translation. But but today I want to do something that's a bit more focused on, on ING and what you have been doing um, in this sector and, and certainly around helping um, clients and then portfolios decarbonise assets. And I, I think a real key aspect of that will be the Terra approach. It's a, a so essentially ING have a have a loan book of around six hundred billion euros across across your sectors, um, and you're now trying to steer um, those books towards meeting um, the Paris Agreement's two degrees target. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And um, it is part of our entire sustainable finance approach. Um, so besides just supporting our clients specifically with green products like green bonds green loans and sustainability improvement loans. Uh, we have committed last September to the uh, Terra approach, how we call it. Uh, 600 billion indeed in the most um, carbon in, uh, intensive sectors that we want to align well below the two degree scenario over time. So there wasn't any standard out there in the market and therefore we thought, well, um, we want to create something. We want to do our bit to support our clients in the transi transition to tomorrow's economy, in the transition to meet the Paris Agreement. Um, so we have looked around in the, um, with different industry bodies looking at are there any tools that we can use, are there initiatives out there already, and there weren't. So we teamed up with the 2DI Investing Initiative, which is an independent think tank. They use scientific metrics for climate measurement, and they have helped us to identify for um, the key sectors within our portfolio to make sure that we have uh, an understanding of where the market is today and where it should be to meet the Paris Agreement. We made that open source um, as we find it very important that other banks are also able to join us in this effort in aligning with the Paris Agreement. So uh, we um, developed the approach further and at the Climate Summit in Katowice, four banks already committed to, uh, to join us in, in this effort. And recently we had a kickoff workshop here in London again, uh, where another around 10 banks also are about to join our commitment and that is also our aim not only to have the Terra approach for ING to align our portfolio but to really set the standard within the market and to have other banks to join us and join our efforts in together going towards uh, realizing the Paris Agreement. That's really good to hear and um, nice the fact that there's so many other banks joining in um, open sources I think in terms of sustainability an area where businesses can 
co cooperate quite well in that sense. Uh, but the um, how does that how has the terror approach in that sense then changed the conversations you'll have with clients in those kind of carbon heavy sectors that you mentioned? Yeah, it's only it's not only the carbon heavy sectors necessarily. Okay. It is the sectors well, for example, automotive, um, shipping, the energy generation sector, uh, the energy sector as a whole, the mortgages sector, the real estate sector. So those sectors that have an impact and where we know where how the composition of the sector looks today. Like, so if we take the example of the automotive sector, mm. we have a certain percentage of electric vehicles, a certain percentage of hybrid vehicles, and a certain percentage of traditional uh, fossil fuel cars. If we know the market today, and we map towards the energy agency scenario to meet the Paris Agreement, we can see how the sector sh division should be to meet the Paris Agreement, so how significant the growth in electric vehicles sh should be. That we can map on our portfolio, so we know where our portfolio is today and we know where it needs to go tomorrow. And we can drive that then. And individually, and that is a nice thing also of 2DI Initiative, is that they have forward-looking data on investment plans of our clients on how they are investing, for example, in electrification of the automotive sector. So per client, we can see, are they on track to meet the Paris Agreement by their investment plans in electric vehicles? And we can specifically then have the dialogue with our clients, financing them specifically on making those targets really happen. So it's more of a case of you will map your client against um, the, the trajectories you mentioned, and if, if you feel that they're perhaps a little bit below the, the line where they need to be, you can then um, go to them and, and say, actually, you need to start producing more hydrogen or electric vehicles. Is that right? Terra is also for us um, not an approach where we are we are looking at really the opportunities and how we can support and have the dialogue with our clients mm. in meeting the Paris Agreement. So it's not for us a benchmark where we say, well, you're below the target and therefore we end the relationship. It is to have a proactive approach and work together towards that transition. So indeed, we will work together then with our clients and have that discussion on, hey, you are here, these are your plans, is that indeed correct? And how can we support you further in growing your Paris ambition as well? And I want to use the um, energy uh, sector as an example because in the last probably few months or so we've seen a lot of our traditional energy companies that have relied on oil and gas and fossil fuels uh, like so Shell, BP kind of come out and, and pledge to the Paris Agreement <clears throat> or at least start linking certain aspects of their performance to the Paris Agreement for example. So how, how in using a, an energy company like that example that have said here's this big public pledge to the Paris Agreement, on paper it looks like it aligns quite well to to ING and the terror approach, but how can you, how do the conversations have to keep happening to ensure that they haven't just made a pledge and then they're just kind of sitting on their hands? Well, because of the metrics that we use from um, from 2DI and also with the other banks joining in, in uh, supporting us in, in the same standard, we will create a market understanding of where do we need to be, how does an, a portfolio of our client needs to look like to be on the trajectory to Paris. So if we have that, we can have an informed dialogue with our clients. So we really also encourage transparency and commitment there that we can have an open dialogue and really look at how can we support and also join forces to work towards this commitment uh, towards, towards Paris. 
um, so important is to have that uh, open dialogue with our clients and uh, it's important I think across all the different sectors that there is the commitment towards the Paris trajectory because without that we won't make it happen. So it's important that also from the corporate sector there is the commitment to realize this. Uh, and that that is the starting point of our dialogue. Okay, and the fact that other banks um, have agreed to kind of take on that approach as well would suggest to me that the approach is working. Um, so in terms of benefits for, for ING, uh, what kind of successes are, are they bringing, bringing you in terms of how you manage your, your client portfolio? Well, I must also say that the uh, the approach is not ready yet. Okay. So, uh, also the other banks joining, yes, they believe that this is the right approach, and therefore we start refining it all together. But not for all the sectors, for example, there is a scenario ready. So we need to also, in some cases, still look into the sector specifics, see which scenario is the best to apply and join uh, with all the banks indeed mm. um, together on embracing that scenario as a trajectory towards Paris. Once we have that, indeed, it gives us really good insight in our portfolio and it helps us to get an understanding of how we are meeting the Paris Agreement. For us, that's also in terms of benefits. We believe that tomorrow's economy will be a better economy. So investing already now in the changes and the transition to reach that economy will help us to future-proof our portfolio as well, but also helps us to future-proof our clients' portfolios. And you've done a few things to, I suppose, incentivize some of your clients to really take steps on their public commitments. There was the um, that kind of landmark um, loan that you, I think it was Philips that you agreed with, so the, um, the investment um, I, I'm not going to pretend I know anything about banking or stuff like that, but um, it was something like the <clears throat> the loan in returns was based on how well they were reducing their energy consumption. So is there any more um, plans like that to really incentivize clients that you're working with in, an <clears throat> in a financial way? Yeah, the first um, sustainability-linked loan, how this transaction type is, is being called, was indeed done with Philips. Um, we designed it ourselves in-house. Mm -hmm. We launched it in the market two years ago. We are now have closed already more than 40 transactions oh, wow. uh, of these kind. So we've seen also the, the uptake amongst our clients as really being supportive. The principle indeed works in such a way that overall the company has a commitment to improve its sustainability performance. So not only to generate, for mm. example, renewable energy, but it could be that they have um, improvements in their rating, which we agree upfront that they need to make in a year's time. Okay. If they meet that commitment, and it could be either environmental social governance ratings or specific KPIs, which are also externally mm. verified after a year's time, if they meet the improvement, they get a discount on the margin. If they don't meet the improvement, and they, it even gets worse, they get a penalty. So it's a very simple but very strong signal where we support our overall client ambition to realize sustainability and to move towards this economy of tomorrow. <clears throat> it's a really interesting project in that sense. And I just want to touch on one more of the, I suppose, options that you offer to um, clients, which is your mortgage portfolio. Uh, just a quick look at your website. Basically, says you're trying to help um, houses become energy um, positive and that you're 
<clears throat> you started with your three biggest markets in the Netherlands, Germany and Belgium. I mean, in the UK, we've just had the spring statement, uh, which was um, quite a big focus on green house building and green homes. We've got a few um, financial institutions and banks in the UK which have launched kind of green mortgage schemes as well. What has the success been like so far in those three um, major markets uh, first up? Well, we've recently made that commitment. Uh, we made that commitment just before the climate summit uh, with regard to our mortgages mm -hmm. portfolio that we have a certain percentage that needs to meet indeed the, um, the highest energy labels. We therefore are now focused to drive the portfolios. In some of the countries, there are the energy labels available. Hmm. So it's easier for us to steer the new mortgages um, that will meet indeed uh, those energy labels. Next to that, we're also looking into engaging with smart parties in the market to help the lower energy labels to become better. We've established uh, a leading track record when it comes to the real estate market on this already. We have uh, initiated a real estate app where um, commercial real estate owners can upload their portfolio, get insight into the sustainability performance of their building portfolio, and take measurements to invest and get immediately also information on what is the return on investment, etc. Um, and what is the sustainability performance realized if I take these measures. Next to that, we've also implemented an energy robot, which also um, is used remotely to understand what is the, how can you take measures to optimize the energy efficiency of buildings. And those kind of smart ways, how we've uh, built our track record on the commercial real estate market, we also now want to see how can we create synergy from that in a mortgages portfolio. So besides energy labels, we also look at how can we have smarter ways to improve the sustainability performance of houses with a lower energy label to eventually indeed meet our commitment to have uh, the majority of our mortgages portfolio into the higher energy uh, performance categories. Okay, um, great. Amy. I'm wary of keeping your time for too much longer. The fact you're only in the UK for one day means you've probably got a lot of people um, to speak to. But just to uh, finish off then, in terms of we, we've spoken about projects that have been launched relatively recently over the last um, year or two, what's, what's kind of next on the horizon for RNG in relation to sustainability? Is there anything you're really focusing on for the next 12 months? Well, we continue to... Uh work on our leadership position. So we are currently leading in the green bond uh, league tables globally. We are leading in the green loan league tables globally. And these improvement loans, um, we've closed more than 40, which is the highest number also in the market out there. Last year, we've established our sustainable investment portfolio where we can also, at an earlier stage, get involved into newer technologies and newer business models to invest in our future clients. That helps us also to um, to establish and accelerate our leadership position further. So we continue to uh, innovate on our product offering, uh, shaping new markets by having new type of sectors included in our sustainability products, initiatives like Terra indeed. Um, so we really want to continue to be on top of all the developments and uh, yeah, and make it happen and, and accelerate tomorrow's economy. Okay, it sounds like a lot of horizon scanning going on, which is always good to see. Um, yeah, Leonie, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Great, thank you too.
Yes, so welcome back to the final segment of this bumper podcast episode. We've discussed some of the specific climate challenges across sectors um, that are faced with some unique issues and are now focusing on some rather unique responses, which is great to see. But for the business community as a whole, how can corporates begin to communicate with consumers? And we've seen from the recent climate strikes that consumers now are you know, extremely engaged with the subject, but all this great work that businesses are doing and the businesses are starting to do can be you know, left off those discussions unless strategic communication strategies are put in place. Um, and Sarah, I believe you've spoken to the Carbon Trust about this on, on said matter. Do you want to kind of set the scene for this chat a little bit while you reached out to them? Yeah, sure. Just as you mentioned, to give a broad overview of how low carbon leadership has changed over the past few decades across across all sectors, um, really. Tom is great to speak to about this because he's been in the Carbon Trust for 18 years so almost as long as Edie has been (laughs) has been around and we all know that back in in those days disclosure wasn't mainstream and the SDGs didn't exist the Climate Change Act didn't exist the Paris Agreement wasn't even a thought (laughs) in anyone's mind Um, environmental CSR had been a theory for around 40 years or so but was only just becoming a serious concern for major businesses and we were all wearing low-rise jeans and listening to Kylie Minogue. Hey, some of us still are, okay? <laughs> um, yeah, so just to talk about how low-carbon leadership has changed um, in those those 18 years and how, as you mentioned, disclosure and communications have played a key part in that. Okay, well it sounds like um, we're going to hear some real pearls of wisdom from Tom. Um, Tom's at the Dom Carbon Trust. I believe the last time we spoke to him was actually when he was out in Marrakesh for um, for the COP talks there. So it's good to finally hear from him again. Um, so I'm sure our listeners will enjoy this chat. It's, uh, he's always insightful. So enjoy that chat in full. Right, so on the next stop of our low-carbon leadership journey, I am joined here by Tom DeLay from the Carbon Trust. Yeah, good morning, Sarah. Um, and I thought it would be good just to recap on some of that discussion which was had so the panel had a really intriguing title in my opinion it was called the hard talk do plastics really matter about whether plastics action is actually distracting from other environmental issues or whether it is intertwined or whether it is a gateway issue to get people engaged with sustainability Um, and it was a really engaging discussion Tom from yourself and then also representatives from compassion and world farming um, and those responsible for protecting California's coast from plastic pollution. Um, so would you mind for our readers sort of clarifying and recapping on some of your takeaways from that session? Absolutely. I mean, uh, there were three of us on the panel, and I think from the California coastal protection uh, perspective, um, essentially the message was very clear. Plastic pollution for the oceans is horrendous. It's a growing problem, um, and it's one that needs to be dealt with. And you know, there was some recognition that in dealing with it, uh, it may present uh, both co-benefits but also issues because dealing with one issue can often create a problem somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a passionate, I think, call for action on uh, plastics in the oceans that I think pretty much everybody would support. Um, Compassion in World Farming was interesting because it brought in the context of uh, the food supply chain in particular and agriculture. And, of course, plastics is very much part of that, particularly the delivery process that goes from the field to a plate. Uh, seems to involve an awful lot of plastic that many of us would prefer not to pay for. Um, 
but again, I think there's a recognition that, yeah, addressing plastics is, is a big issue, but there are other issues we just need to keep things in perspective on. Mm. So I think the other panelists were pushing very hard, um, both the, the case for eliminating plastic in oceans as far as we possibly can, and indeed eliminating plastic in the food and agricultural supply chains. Um, to some degree, uh, I presented the case, look, let's look at it from a climate change perspective, where uh, plastic is undoubtedly uh, a problem, um, but where dealing with plastic could be an even bigger problem. Um, I think it's a really uh, challenging area. Um, we've got to recognize that um, you know, plastics at the moment are very much uh, first use. The uh, ability to recycle or reuse plastic is still relatively limited, but doing more of that as demand for plastics grows, as it almost certainly will in emerging economies over the next 20 years, is going to present all kinds of problems. Mm. Uh, the analogy that uh, I used on the panel uh, is really that of, of diesel and petrol cars. Um, when we were focused very much on carbon emissions, the extended mileage of diesel cars uh, and therefore the lower uh, CO2 emissions of diesel cars made everybody think we need to move from petrol to diesel. Uh, then we realized there's a problem with air pollution and NOx and diesel suddenly becomes an issue, particularly old diesel vehicles. And suddenly regulation and legislation and public opinion swings against diesel. Mm -hmm. and whilst the planet would love the solution then to be EVs, electric vehicles, actually what most people have done, if they are going to replace their, their car or their vehicle, is to go back to petrol. And so now we're seeing rising transport emissions driven by a switch back from uh, diesel to petrol. Mm. So in some ways, I think plastics is a not dissimilar situation. There is such an outcry on plastics there is such a popular movement behind let's deal with single-use plastics that it might be blind to some of the issues that it throws up. Mm. But it was refreshing as well that in the discussion you talked about how plastic and carbon were related. I've got in front of me here, for example, another a new WWF um, report estimating that the life cycle of plastics, like the world's total plastic stock, will go up by 50% by 2030 because we're going to burn yeah. more of it before we can recycle it so it was refreshing to have a discussion where it wasn't oh do we care about plastics or carbon and that actually they are connected they're very much connected i mean uh, you know the, the root of plastics is fossil fuels mm -hmm. and those fossil fuels will become plastics uh, and most plastics after use either find their way into landfill um, or get burnt uh, incinerated um, recycling is uh, an obvious uh, route to handle that increased demand and, and mitigate that to some degree by recycling plastic into uh, the supply chain. Um, but you've got to look at every stage of that issue. So, for instance, biodegradable plastics, um, very popular uh, at one point in time, now being questioned. Um, if you put biodegradable plastic into landfill, often it will then release itself as methane mm -hmm. and whatever was inside the plastic will probably come out as methane as well. Um, biodegradable plastic, if you try putting it back into a recycling loop, will actually damage the quality of the recycled plastic that you're trying to reuse. Yeah. And all of a sudden you find that you can't use that recycled plastic uh, because there's biodegradable plastic mixed in with it. Mm. Um, so there are some very real challenges uh, in how 
you actually manage the recycling process. But yes, absolutely. Um, there's a direct link between plastic and climate change in that the raw material for plastic uh, is more often than not fossil fuels, although biosources uh, are increasingly becoming popular. The issue with biosources is that, of course, that puts a, a stress and a demand on land use, and ultimately land use is uh, you know, very much tied into the food supply chain. So we're concerned about food supply chain. Uh, land use becomes very important, and uh, as does water stress, and therefore biosource plastics is not straightforward either. Mm. No, it's definitely a very complex issue, and I know we've had Carbon Trust on here several times since we started the podcast but I was hoping to explain so is the process for you working for companies in the plastics industry the same as working for example in sustainable power green buildings yeah well I think I think uh, dealing with plastics is interesting because it is dealing with uh, an issue for many corporates that um, has a, a, a compelling drive but also a bunch of issues and it's not the only one. Uh, when we work with corporates who are exposed in their global operations to water stress, they've got to recognize that between climate change and water stress, you know, generally speaking, you deal with one, you can usually help the other. Mm -hmm. But there are issues when water stress becomes particularly acute. So I think from a business point of view, plastics is interesting because most businesses represent, you know, uh, or need to position themselves vis-a-vis -vis their consumer and meet consumer demand. Now, consumers are becoming increasingly uh, concerned about plastic and don't necessarily understand you know, the other issues that might come in. So to some degree, you've got to do the right thing for the consumer whilst also doing the right thing for the planet mm -hmm. and explain at times what the difference is. And sometimes you can't explain that. Years ago, we did some work uh, for a number of retailers looking at single-use plastic carrier bags. And the simple answer is that if you simply use it as a carrier bag, um, it is probably a more efficient uh, material in terms of carbon emissions than the equivalent paper bag, or far more importantly, jute bag. There was a big fashion for you know, jute bags that you would carry your shopping in. Uh, you actually have to use your jute bag uh, typically several times a week for over a year uh, for it to be equivalent in terms of efficiency to using single-use carrier bags. Mm. Single-use carrier bags use very little plastic, and they can be recycled quite effectively because of the material that they have. Uh, and one of the best things you can actually do with a single-use carrier bag is simply to put it in and use it as a bin liner. Uh, it becomes a very good high-quality bin liner, and at that point, the single-use carrier bag that was the enemy can actually become the friend. Uh, because it is a more efficient way of transporting your shopping than a paper bag or typically a jute bag. Mm. Um, that's fine, but I don't think any retailer uh, has ever put that case to the public because you know, there is an outcry about single-use plastics, and we're looking at the oceans, we're looking at animals uh, and nature and wildlife around the world being harmed by single-use plastic. You just can't make the case for it's okay. Mm. Um, what businesses are having to do is balance, therefore, the needs of their consumers uh, to get a, the right thing for the consumer that doesn't cause damage elsewhere. Mm. The other thing I'd say for plastics and businesses is that some of the actions that we've taken early on to address uh, single-use plastics have actually made it more difficult for businesses. 
um, it wasn't long ago that not many different plastics were used for packaging. And that when plastic was used, it was typically quite thick, quite heavy. There was a lot of plastic in the packaging itself. Now, of course, we expect packaging to be much less intensive in plastic, and therefore there's much less plastic in the packaging. And there are far more variants on plastics that are being used. Now, some of those plastics uh, can be recycled, some can't, some are biodegradable. Um, and overall, because the amount of plastic used in packaging is going down, because people are increasingly concerned about it, it becomes less cost-effective to collect and recycle that plastic. Mm -hmm. So some of the early actions to try and deal with single-use plastic have actually weakened the business case for recycling mm -hmm. because we now have a greater number of plastic materials available. We have you know, less plastic and therefore it's more expensive to actually collect. Um, and the environmental impact of dealing with these multitudes of materials and the waste collection, physical waste, chemical uh, transformation in some cases of plastic back to a raw material uh, can be very harmful. Mm. No, because I've read a report before that describes the amount of plastics and different kinds out there as a smorgasbord, so I thought that was quite apt for it, especially when you read the back of your packaging. Um, but I just wanted to ask, so given given what you've talked about, about growing consumer um, pressures, but then in the face yeah. of these low-carbon targets in which the demands from the consumer and what the targets entail might actually be different in terms of... Um, materials used of products and services offered what what do you think that low carbon leadership will look like in the future and how it can be communicated with um with consumers in what is a fast news cycle where there is a new issue every few years there is and i mean so i mean in the case of plastics um probably the safest thing to say is reuse it so find some sort of material which can be reused, doesn't necessarily need to be recycled, i.e. produce materials that have a longer life, which you can use for longer, and therefore the plastic stays in the supply chain. Effectively, what you're doing is you're reducing demand for plastic by using it in a way that, that extends its life. Mm -hmm. So I think most of us can accept that, and you can imagine as a consumer, you, you understand a, a bag for life or equivalent um, is exactly that. And if you use it for a long time and you don't throw it away, that's a very efficient use of plastic. But the general concern, of course, of communication is, 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 is important. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm a big optimist on this. I think it's been hard in the past to explain uh, some of the aspects of climate change, the impacts that are not straightforward. It's particularly hard to explain where there's more than one thing. It's not just good, bad. It's actually, well, better than. Um, and, I mean, what we're seeing is that young people around the world, particularly in emerging markets and developing countries, are significantly more tuned in to environmental impacts of what they do, what they consume, how they live their lives, than the equivalent young people in developed countries. Mm -hmm. And we've done research on this. It's fascinating. Uh, it's more difficult to engage young people in Europe and North America than it is in developing countries in Latin America and in Asia and in Africa. Now, recognizing we also you know, have now got a wide movement of, of school children uh, out there in Europe uh, calling, uh, calling out the lack of political will uh, of the establishment in the developed economies and saying, look, you know, we demand that you do something about our future. 
Well, that's maybe seeing that you know, what people are acutely aware of in developing countries is also coming home to roost here in, in the developed world. Yes. Overall, though, I think what that gives businesses is a far more positive platform to work with. Uh, they, they can now explain things knowing that people actually want to listen to the answer. They actually maybe are going to give it a bit more time, so you don't just have to have the yes-no, but you can actually explain something, and people are interested in how uh, that explanation might take place. And, of course, technology helps. Um, there was a time when the best you get in terms of packaging is a, a, a written label and maybe a barcode. Mm -hmm. The barcode's useless from this point of view, and the written label only can have a few words on it. You know, increasingly, we're seeing QR codes and equivalent codes on packaging. So if somebody wants to know exactly what's going on here and explain to me how this can possibly be carbon neutral, yeah, check the QR code. That will give you the full evidence base, the statistics behind it. It will explain it to people who want to know that extra level of detail. Mm -hmm. And I think overall, um, I think plastics from that point of view is, is great because it has raised awareness. A lot of people are now asking questions which they wouldn't have done in the past. It's always good to end on a positive note. So thank you very much for joining us today, Tom, and for sharing your insight on the interlinking of these really complex and big challenges. Uh, Sarah, it was an absolute pleasure. Thanks very much for your time. So that's a really strong note from Tom there to end on. Uh, we are fresh out of time here at the ED studio, and a big thanks to all our guests for appearing today, and of course, uh, Sarah, for again putting in most of the legwork for this episode. A reminder that these episodes can be viewed online via the ED website or downloaded via iTunes and Spotify. As for us, we'll be back in around two weeks' time where I bring you two live podcast panel discussions from ED Live. So if you're interested in the topics of spurring innovation and what leadership will look like in a post-CSR world, do keep your eyes peeled for those. But for now, it's a goodbye from Sarah. Goodbye. And a goodbye from me. Goodbye. Goodbye.